Each year, more than 12 million people will hear the same three devastating words. You have cancer. I'm Lee Silverstein, a survivor of pediatric kidney cancer and stage four colon cancer. My amazing wife, Linda, has taught me that we have cancer because every one of us is affected by it in some way. Survivors, family, friends, and medical and support team members. And we all have a story worth telling. Welcome to We Have Cancer. Welcome to episode 98. Thank you so much for joining us. A lot to get to today. Uh, Where do I start? Goodness. You know, a lot of people have reached out with the name change and uh, have seen the logo on the website and have asked about when are you going to do t-shirts, merchandise, those kinds of things. So you asked and we've delivered and we do have a selection of shirts as well as a coffee mug with the We Have Cancer logo on it. You can find those by visiting the website at wehavecancershow.com forward slash shop and proceeds from each sale will go back to the Colon Cancer Coalition. So go ahead and check those out. We have a double episode going on today, a short interview followed by a more in-depth interview. Those of you who are involved in the online colon cancer community might be familiar with my buddy Chad Schrack. I met Chad in Washington at the Colon Congress event sponsored by Fight CRC back in March, and on May 6th, Chad embarked on a walk. And I'm not just talking about a walk to his mailbox or a walk up to the corner store. But Chad started a walk on May 6th in Fairfax, Virginia. And he is walking across the United States. His goal is to finish in uh, Venice Beach, California, to raise awareness for colon cancer. Uh, He's doing this uh, in dedication and in honor of his wife, uh, Sheila, who is a longtime survivor of colorectal cancer. You can keep up with Chad and his journey uh, on Facebook or also on Twitter. You can find Chad on Twitter at Cancer Stroll is what you'll look for on Twitter and keep up with Chad's progress. He, at the time of this recording, which is taking place on Tuesday, June the 26th, he's currently in Missouri. But when I caught up with Chad, he was in Ohio. Uh, because he's on foot and uh, traveling a lot, uh, we had some technology challenges, so we didn't get to chat for as long as we had hoped to, uh, but I know you'll enjoy uh, my short conversation with Chad. So, and once I finish the uh, conversation with Chad, then you'll stay tuned and listen to our featured guest this week, which is Allison Rosen. You can find Allison online on Twitter at uh, arosen380 is her, how you can find her on Twitter. Or if you want to follow Allison on Instagram, her handle on Instagram is alleycat380 and Ally is A-L-I. So A-L-I-C-A-T-380 on Instagram. Uh, Really an interesting conversation. I so enjoyed talking, not just to Chad, but to Allison as well. And Allison was recently recognized, uh, really prestigious and well-deserved recognition. She was recognized as one of the 40 of oncology's rising stars and emerging leaders under the age of 40. And Allison uh, received this recognition for the great work she's doing as an oncology researcher at uh, Baylor Medical Center in Texas. Not only is Allison a researcher, but Allison is also a colon cancer survivor herself. So really interesting conversation. So we've got Chad followed by Allison. And then be sure, as always, to stay tuned at the end of the show for our update on Get Your Rear in Gear events taking place across the country and our Ask the Doctor segment with Dr. Tim Cannon. So join me now first for my conversation with Chad, followed by my conversation with Allison. Chad, welcome to the show. How are you this evening? Uh, We've been following you as you're trekking across the country. Uh, How are you doing? Hey, thanks for having me, Leah. I'm doing great. 
feeling good. Uh, feel strong. I saw posted last night that you got to spend the night in a, in a hotel room. Did I catch that right? Uh, I did over the weekend. Over the weekend. Um, okay. I hit Athens, Ohio. Yeah. I, uh, Sheila came down, uh, my wife and, uh, yeah, we, uh, I took about a half day off and they had a nice hot tub. It felt good. <laughs> I bet. So here's the big question. How are your feet? <laughs> well, all the blisters are calluses. So they're, uh, they're, they're okay. The feet aren't as bad as I thought they were going to be. Actually, they're, they're doing okay. You know, when we met up in D.C. for calling Congress back in March, you know, everybody was talking about uh, this this big event and this this big thing you were about to undertake. And you and I had chatted and you talked about how you listened to the show, but I didn't get a chance to circle back to you to ask you, you know, what what uh, you know, how did this all evolve? How did this get started? Well, it's kind of a crazy story. Um, Seven years ago, um, I knew. I would be turning 50 in seven years. So I had an idea of, uh, of walking across the country. I, I don't know why. I drive a truck. I think of all kinds of things off the wall a little bit. But anyway, I work at FedEx and I went to my, uh, my terminal manager and I asked him and he kind of laughed and he said, if you're willing to try it, I'll, uh, I'll give you the time off. I'll make sure you get the time off. Okay. So time went by and he kind of asked me some questions about it and we talk and go back and forth about it. And, uh, he comes to me one day and he says, Hey, you have to do it for a cause. I said, okay, well, my wife's a colon cancer survivor. We're really involved with fight CRC, fight colorectal cancer. I'll do it for them. Okay, great. Within six months, this boss of mine, his name is John Murphy was diagnosed with colon cancer. And within a year he passed. So now I have to do it. Right. I mean, my goodness, it's just gotta be done. You know that and with fight CRC and, um, you know, I just, the challenge of it, getting across there. But uh, that's that's kind of where the whole thing originated from. So you started in Arlington, Virginia, and yep. uh, the finish line is out in Venice Beach, California. Do I have that right? Yep, that's right. Um, going from one freak show to the other. Uh, just kidding if you're from, uh, I'm just kidding if you're from Venice Beach. You're not a freak show. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, and I want to dig dig more into you know this walk, but I want to go back to to March, and and that was my first call on Congress. I got the impression that you were an old pro at that, and uh, I'm watching you on stage. I think you did a um, role play in terms of the do's and don'ts of of meeting with your your congressman as we were preparing to head up to the hill, and what caught my attention chad was your passion and and, you know look a lot of us survivors and your your caregiver you know are very passionate about this topic but yours was really palpable and you know where does that passion for advocacy come from well my wife my wife sheila um you know you met her she's she's very involved and uh she keeps me involved um you know, it's tough uh, seeing seeing your loved one go through that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I still, I think back to those times and it, it brings tears to my eyes. Um, you know, seeing her, having her have to fight, you know, every day and, and the, the anxiety, the wondering what's next, what's next. You know, because we didn't know. We were in the dark. Um, she was she was diagnosed in um, in February of 2006. And yeah, we were just kind of muddling our way through it. And, and now, you know, there's Fight CRC, there's Colon Club, you know, there's so many different avenues, so many different resources where people can go to now, which is awesome. Um, but at the time, we didn't know. And, um, you know, I just I do anything I can to try to help help spread the word. It's colon cancer. I mean, it's, you know, I don't have to tell you the stats on it. You know more than I do. It's the second deadliest cancer. But it, it shouldn't be a stigma. It should people should be talking about it. It's, it's preventable and, you know, get out there and and just get out in front of it, I guess is, is the thing. Just don't let it beat you get out in front of it. And, uh, yeah. And, and, and and Sheila, you know, to see her strength and how she, uh, how she fought it. And it's, it's very inspiring. So when you came up with this idea to walk across the country, what was her reaction? Uh, she rolled her eyes like she does a lot of, 
<laughs> a lot of things I do. You, you make that sound uh, like it's a common occurrence between the two of you. <laughs> yeah, it, it happens. It happens. But yeah, she, uh, yeah, she, she, I think it was one of those things for her where she thought that it would never come, you know? And so she would just kind of roll her eyes and go along with it. Then when the time came, she was like, wow, you're really going to do this, aren't you? And I was like, well, I'm going to give it everything I got, you know, I'm going to try. And, and, uh, yeah, no, she's been very, very supportive. Like we'd said earlier, you know, she, um, she's really been doing the Facebook and all the, all the social media because, um, yeah, that's, that's not really my thing, but yeah, she's been so supportive. It's, it's, I couldn't do anything without Sheila. Anyone who knows me and Sheila knows that she's, she's the motor that runs the machine. How long have you guys been together? Uh, it'll be, we will have been married 29 years next month, but we started dating when I was 16 and she was 17. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So talk to me about, about the planning that went into this stroll. I know, uh, that's, that's what we're referring to it as, uh, as your, as your cancer stroll, but, uh, to take me through the, the planning that was involved. Well, when you say planning, wherever Sheila's at, if she's can even sense that, she just rolled her eyes because uh, <laughs> I didn't really. <laughs> I picked a start point and a finish point, and I would get on Google Maps and uh, I'd say, I think it's about this long. And yeah, she would, uh, yeah, get on me. But um, yeah, I started planning at work. Uh, again, they've been very, very supportive. Uh, FedEx, I, I can't. I'm not trying to do a commercial for FedEx, but it, it's it's uh, they've been great. They've uh, they've stood behind me and they're supporting me the whole way. They're trying to help me every day. They call me every day and and try to find me a place to stay. The the VFWs have been great and churches, you know. But yeah, I just I I get up each day. Here's here's the basic plan: as I I get up in the morning, I know I'm going to walk 22 miles. I look at my phone to see what's out there 22 miles down the road and I give them a call around noon and ask if I can sleep in their yard. And uh, some people invite me in the house and some people not so much, but it's worked out so far. Any uh, particular stories worth sharing? I know you're only about two and a half weeks in, but uh, any stories uh, that you'd like to share? One thing that I really would like to, to let everyone know is I wear a shirt um, I had it made up. It says fight colorectal cancer and it's got the, the ribbon star on the front of it. And on the back, it says cancer stroll. And I wear, I have more than one. I'm not Gilligan. <laughs> um, but I, I, I've been wearing those and I cannot tell you how many people are affected with colon cancer so far. Every day, every today, I talked to two people whose families have had colon cancer. A woman's mother's, um, battling it right now. Another woman's father. Um, I had a woman today pull over in her car and come out and give me a hug and tell me that her father's battling colon cancer right now. And uh, less than an hour ago, I was at a VFW waiting because they they uh, they're helping me out tonight. And a woman came over and same thing. She she said that uh, she'd lost her mother to colon cancer. So I know cancer is really out there. I mean, I know everybody knows somebody who's had cancer, but I guess I didn't realize that colon cancer is you, you know it's it's just so many people are touched by it. And, uh, you know, we just got to keep getting out there and trying to raise awareness and getting people screened, getting this figured out. I often see people posting in the various Facebook groups talking about their struggle to stay hydrated. And if that applies to you, you should check out H2ORS. H2ORS is an oral rehydration solution. It's a medically accepted alternative to IV hydration. So for those of you who are struggling with this issue of staying hydrated, either due to an ostomy or perhaps chemotherapy, H2ORS is something for you to consider. It'll really help replenish your fluids and electrolyte levels. As a matter of fact, it has three times the electrolytes of most of the popular sports drinks without the excess sugar, artificial flavors, or artificial colors. My buddy Chris Shaw over at H2ORS is offering listeners of the podcast an opportunity to try a free sample of H2ORS. All you need to do is just go to their site, h2ors.com forward slash sample, and they'll ship a free sample out to you, no strings attached. And when you're ready to make your first purchase at h2ors.com, if you use the coupon code CCPOD, they'll give you 10% off your first order. 
Be sure to stick around at the end of this interview for our new Ask the Doctor segment and to learn how you can get your rear in gear. Allison, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm doing great here in Texas. <laughs> you know, I really appreciate you reaching out to me. Um, I recall, I should recall, wasn't that long ago, just a couple weeks ago, you DM'd me on Twitter mm-hmm. and said, you should interview me. And I was like, okay. And then I jump over to Facebook and I'm like, oh my goodness, we know all the same peeps. Which is, you know, we always joke it's the club that nobody wants to be a part of. But once you're in it, like everybody knows everybody else. Exactly. It's it's a small world, but yet it's a big world. And through um, advocacy, I've met outreach education. I've met so many amazing people that my world of, of friends now is so much bigger because of, because of the amazing people in the colorectal cancer world. Well, I'm going to bounce around here a little bit, but I wanted to ask you about... I know it was recent. Uh, you were at the Early Age Onset Summit in New York last week. Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, that experience and, and your thoughts. I always love going to any sort of colorectal cancer um, symposium or summit to learn more because I, I specifically am an early onset colorectal cancer um, survivor as well as I do for my job, outreach and education. And we focus a lot on the uninsured minority population within the the general Houston area. And I think within that category, you can put that early onset colorectal cancer patient um, because we are um, a minority, but yet that number is just rising. It's just becoming more and more. When you look at the numbers, and I look at them all the time, the 15 above population that's that's getting diagnosed is um, with colorectal cancer is going down, and then this early onset population is just rising. And so at that summit, a lot of researchers presented their 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 information, what what sort of data they had, um, and it was fascinating to find out that you know I think the early onset colorectal cancer is going up, but it's more rectal cancer and it's more males that um, it's rising in. And so it just goes to show that we need to do more education and awareness earlier in life so that these people will be, it will be on the radar because by the time colorectal cancer is diagnosed with a young adult or in a young adult, it seems like it's already late stages. It's stage four, stage three, because people didn't listen to them. And so besides being an advocate for the future Unfortunately, the future people that might get diagnosed with the disease, there's now research to back up the fact that younger people are getting this disease at an alarming rate. And so we saw doctor after doctor, and including the American Cancer Society, present this data about adenomas and advanced adenomas and diet and what's being put in our food nowadays. And it's just all evident to the disease that none of us wanted, but we're getting. And unfortunately, we heard a story about an 18-year-old that was perfectly healthy that ended up with colorectal cancer. And she's, you know, she's not well now. And that is scary to us as well as the physician. Are they starting? I mean, everybody suspects, but it's one thing to suspect. It's a whole nother thing, especially when you're talking about medicine, to prove. Are there any findings that are starting to point to things in the food supply, and I know we've read a lot about that and things like that. Anything shared? So one of the people, yeah, one of the people at the meeting was talking about emulsifiers and the fats and the stuff that's allowed in our food versus the food that's allowed in, in, in European countries. And there are certain additives that, you know, I, I'm not going to go into the name of the additives because I didn't even understand half of them. But there are certain things that we are allowed to put in our food here versus somewhere else. And because we're allowed to put them in our food and it's not regulated and, you know, it's a lot of the preservatives. It's a lot of the food that, the food that we eat that we microwave that, you know, it's, it's obviously not the natural food. And because we don't have stricter regulations, that seems to be an indication as to why younger people are getting it because people like me 
You know, when I was younger, I ate fish sticks that my mom put in the oven, ate stovetop stuffing, you know, you know, not to say that any of that stuff gave me cancer, but the stuff within processed food in general is not healthy for anybody, let alone colorectal cancer patients. And they are looking at that now. Is this early age onset issue strictly um, surfaced only in the U.S.? Um, now, that's a question I'm not 100% sure about. I definitely think all the research that I personally have seen has been within the U.S. So I don't doubt that there is early onset somewhere else. But the big study that came out through the American Cancer Society focused on America, so the U.S. That would be something something to find out because I think in general, as far as I know, as far as my knowledge is, is cancer happens everywhere, obviously, but it's definitely more prevalent within the U.S. versus, you know, Japan or countries that, you know, all their food is natural. They have expiration dates on it. You can't take something and put it in your fridge and it will be good a week later. I mean, there, there are certain countries that have strict, strict regulations. And I find it very interesting because one of my friends who I talk to on a regular basis, who's an integrative medicine doctor, showed me a slide once, or she posted it on Facebook. I can't even quite remember. But she showed me a picture of, it's the same same bar. It's a, it's a breakfast bar. She had the breakfast bar, a picture of the breakfast bar that we serve, that we, you know, I guess we get at the store here in the U.S., then a breakfast bar that they get overseas. And everything looked the same. Then she turned it around, and the ingredients in ours, there is probably 10 extra of the phosphoric, whatever, citric acid, all the stuff that you shouldn't be putting in your body versus the same exact bar, the same exact company is making it totally different for European countries because they have stricter laws as or regulations, should I say, as to what you can put into that food. Now, why we can't get that here, I have no idea. I mean, obviously, the F Food and Drug Administration is, a, is an entity that, that's in and of itself self-huge, and uh, I can guarantee that that would be a fight that we would probably lose. But if they can do it in another country, why can't we do it here? Sounds like a topic for a future episode. I mean, it's just, I, I'm not a nutritionist and, you know, and whatnot. And I try to eat healthy now, but everyone that, you know, and they always say, where should you eat? What food should you buy from the grocery store? You should only go on the outer side of the grocery store. But the percentage of food that's actually only on the outer side is nothing. When you say outer, outer side, you're talking about the perimeter of the store, which typically is your fruits and vegetables, your, yes. your basically your less likely to be processed food. Yeah. Like your, your eggs, your milk, your fruits, your vegetables, anything on the inner perimeter. So that you got the perimeter, anything on the inside. You know, you're going to look at these labels and, I mean, obviously, the more natural, the better. Like, the less ingredients, the better. If they have, if it's a, a cookie and it says chocolate chip, flour, wheat, you know, whatever, that's the best. But if you see any of these extra things that are added to any sort of food that makes it not expire within a day or two, that's an attitude that probably we should not be putting in our body. My rule typically is, is if I can't pronounce the word, I won't eat it. <laughs> and that's a really good rule, too. I mean, there are certain <laughs> things that are put into to, to things. And, you know, I'm guilty as, as the other person. I had a Kit Kat today. But there are ways to prevent yourself from only eating that type of food. I mean, we don't all have time to, to go to the grocery store every day and buy something fresh and make your fresh, you know, spaghetti and your fresh, you know, salad and, 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 you know, whatever you want to make. But there are ways to get around that so that you are getting real food into your body on a regular basis. And then, you know, you supplement it with something here or there. I think if you have some processed food, it's not going to kill you because I'm guilty as is everybody I know of, of eating some of that stuff sometimes. I just think that the way kids are growing up nowadays, it's a little bit more well, it is. I mean, it, it is more processed food because that's what the parents have time for, especially if they have four kids. You know, they're they're not sitting there making a homemade chicken noodle soup. 
they're going to go buy it out of a can. Let's wind back a little bit. How did you first, what was your first foray into, into cancer? Well, let's see. It's, it's, it's a, it's, I guess a long story. So, but not really. Um, I've had Crohn's disease. Cro- yeah, sorry. I've had Crohn's disease since I was 12. So I know a lot about GI issues because I've been dealing it with, with it forever. Um, the first time I ever dealt with cancer personally, my mom, she had breast cancer. Um, and we were all kids and we saw her go through all that. And, and, you know, after she went into remission, we went back to normal life and, and all this sort of stuff. And, and I, um, unlike a lot of other people within the colorectal cancer world, I was getting a scope every single year. That was part of my maintenance. That was just checking up and all this sort of stuff. And I know I had polyps removed at various times, but obviously my doctor was not doing a good enough job um, because before I got actually diagnosed, a year and a half, I'd had a colonoscopy. And not to say that I'd ever been fully in remission from my Crohn's, but remission enough that, that they never even mentioned the possibility of me getting cancer. I went in for, I actually was having symptoms. So the symptoms that I was having were very similar to most colorectal cancer patients. I was highly anemic. Um, there was rectal bleeding. I was losing weight and my bowel habits drastically changed. And so I reached out to my GI doctor and I said, listen, I, I think I need a colonoscopy. I don't think something is right. Um, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. Um, I, I definitely think I'm anemic or something. I was a little bit more aware because of my Crohn's since I had it for so long. And so I went in for an x-ray and she, um, she told me it looked like I had some sort of blockage. And if I could do, I could drink some citrate of magnesia that might help. So I went to the store, got some citrate of magnesia. I drank it, felt good for like an hour. And then the same sort of symptoms came back. And so we scheduled my colonoscopy and I remember waking up from it and her saying, well, there's some sort of mass inside your colon, but I'm not quite sure what it is, but I don't think it is cancer. And I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) This is the first I've ever heard of cancer. And then two days later, she calls me. Um, She calls me and I'm at work in my research lab across, across the way from her office. And she asked me to come in and she had never asked me to come into her office for um, colonoscopy results. So at that moment, I, I said, yeah, of course, I'll come over. I start walking over. I call my mom and I'm crying because I knew. How old were you at the time? I was 32. What was the, how did they stage it? And, and what did they kind of prescribe as your, as your treatment protocol? Okay, so, well, I, I got diagnosed on a Thursday and she, you know, we decided obviously I need to go see a doctor's. I need to get all the information. I worked in research, luckily, and so one of my good friends happened to work at MD Anderson Cancer Center and had a coworker that had been recently diagnosed with colorectal cancer. And so she gave me the name of some doctors. And, and then my boss um, in my lab said, let me know what you need. And so she reached out and I had people that worked in my lab that were, um, I had one specific um, person that was a fellow um, in GI over at MD Anderson. And, um, and so I wanted to get the best opinion possible. So I went and saw someone at Baylor, someone at Methodist, and someone at MD Anderson. And although I loved all of the doctors, I think I got in fastest and felt the most comfortable with the doctors that my best friend originally had suggested at MD Anderson. And, you know, it has an amazing reputation. They cure cancer, right? Sure. So all my pathology was sent over to to them. And I originally was staged as stage three. And um, so when I talked to my, my surgeon, I talked to my surgeon first. And, you know, he gave me some some options. And I being, I did a little bit of research, not too much because I'm not a, a big advocate of going online and Googling, but I knew that if they could help it, I would rather not have an ostomy bag. I'd rather have them take whatever part of my colon and get the margin, wherever the tumor was, get the margins and um, give me a J pouch. That was my, 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 my wishes. Now I knew whatever he had to do, he would do. And then um, I went and saw my oncologist and his um, suggestion for the first part of my treatment was 
five and a half weeks of chemo radiation. And so I was lucky at that point because I just did Zolota. I did the chemo pill. So I did five and a half weeks of the chemo radiation. And then we had my surgery, my surgery scheduled. And so I, I got to recover a little bit from the, the radiation. And I had my first surgery, which ended up being supposed to be eight hours, ended up being 12 hours. Because when they went in, my colon was so diseased from the Crohn's over the years that they had to take the whole colon out. But my doctor found enough within me to stretch and make um, an internal J-pouch. And so I woke up with a temporary ileostomy and a J-pouch. And also within that process, within that surgery, the lymph nodes that they thought were positive for the cancer were ended up being negative. So they restaged me as 2C. So that was... I guess the beginning of of my my process and my treatment, and I, I like to say that after um, after that surgery, because it went to to two C, I was one of the lucky um, ones because I didn't have to go on IV chemo. Because originally, if it had been three and looked really bad inside, I was going to have to do another round of chemo, and I would have had to done the bad stuff, which which I've heard of. So I got to do um, the easier, the lesser of two evils, the um, Zolota. And I did that and then I was done. And, you know, I, I go, I was going back for normal scans and, 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 and checkups and everything. Um, for me, the, I wish it had all ended there, but I started having about a year, about a year after I started having issues with my J pouch, severe pouchitis, um, and ended up in the hospital all the time with issues with, with my, with my, with the pouch. And we tried to to do what we could, but unfortunately, I ended up one time in the ER, and um, the GI doctor at the time, will not mention the hospital because it wasn't one that I've already mentioned, um, accidentally punctured the J pouch, and so I ended up in emergency surgery a week later because I was I was I had this colonoscopy, and then they ended up letting me go from this hospital. Then I reached out to my doctors at MD Anderson and was like okay, listen, this is what happened. I think something's not right. They brought me in to their ER and I got admitted. And that's when they told me what they saw. And so I had to have emergency surgery there. And they basically gave me a temporary ileostomy to see if the J pouch would heal. And so I had that, I mean, this is, this is a long story, but the long story short is I had that temporary ileostomy for about two years. And unfortunately, the J pouch did not heal. And if they had decided to, if, if my wishes had been to put me back together, they would have. But my quality of life would have been horrible because of scar tissue mm -hmm. and how little the, the path uh, that my food would have taken. So I ended up having the J pouch, my rectum, and my anus removed. And my ostomy was made permanent at that point. And that was about a year and a half ago. How has that impacted your life now? Um, I think now versus, you know, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to say what I would have felt. Because originally my, my surgeon wanted me to have a permanent colostomy. That was what the surgery that he, he suggested he wanted me to have. And I wasn't ready, I don't think, um, emotionally to have that forever. and so. I wouldn't necessarily take back what, what my wishes were, but I had two years from when I had that emergency surgery with my ileostomy to kind of emotionally prepare myself for it being forever. Because in the back of my mind, I think I uh, emotionally knew that they weren't going to be able to put me back together. I mean, physically, I learned how to do everything that I would have done otherwise, but I got, I had a freedom back. Like when I had the J pouch the first time, I was anxious on road trips because I knew I couldn't eat or drink in the car because I thought I might have to go to the restroom. At a point, a point, certain points in time, I had to wear adult diapers. I, I had a lot of stress and anxiety when, you know, I had that J pouch because it always was getting inflamed and I was always having issues. Versus when I had the temporary ileostomy before I had my last surgery, I went on road trips and ate whatever I wanted and I went surfing and I did, I did so much and I think I, I realized how much freedom 
that an ostomy, be it ileostomy or colostomy, could give me. And the quality of life was so much better than I'd ever expected. Now, the shock of knowing that I was going to have it forever definitely was was not exciting to me. I was, I, you know, I had to grieve, I guess, the loss of, of my, my colon and my J pouch. And, and I had to try to figure out how to emotionally deal with that. Now I have a new body part essentially, because it, it is a part of my body and that's how I see it. But I think I had enough time to process it so that when I woke up, I wasn't, you know, emotionally a huge mess because some people don't have the choice like I do to have a J pouch on, during their first surgery. Whereas I had, I had time to, I guess, emotionally prepare for, for having this bag. So when you were diagnosed, your, your real, I guess, initial personal exposure, maybe that's the right word. Um, but you've been doing, you'd been doing cancer research before you were diagnosed, correct? Yeah. Well, so I, I was, I was doing cancer research and working in a lab. I think my original background is actually, I got my master's in forensic science. And so I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do for a living because I had worked in a crime lab for a little bit and didn't really love that. And so I moved back to Houston to work in a research lab. And essentially I was going to work in the research lab for, I guess, like two years or so, and then try to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. But I, I enjoyed doing research so much that I stayed for, I can't even tell you how long I stayed. I was in it for, I want to say, seven years. And, and then I got my diagnosis. And I think by having experience in cancer research and being more aware of the terms and, and the process that, that, that people go through, when they get diagnosed with cancer, I was a little, I was a lot, a lot more prepared for what my future was going to look like when I was going through cancer treatment. And I also had the right questions to ask. So a lot of younger adults, especially, but everybody, when they get that cancer diagnosis, they have no idea what to ask. And, and they, they fully trust their doctors with their lives. Whereas I did, but yet I had a list of probably 25 different questions to ask my oncologist and surgeon before they had even met me on that first visit because I, I needed these answers because I, I almost knew too much. One of the chemotherapy drugs, actually Zolota, 5-FU, um, one of the drugs very similar to what I got in cancer and colorectal cancer patients get is something that we had used in our lab before. So that was a little scary. Wow. Yeah, it's it's crazy. But it puts you in a position to be able to ask intelligent questions. You know? Yeah, and, and I feel like almost because of my background, I think I got more respect than 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 some patients might might get just because I had a knowledge of, of the medical field that, you know, the average patient doesn't. And one thing that stood out to me about about my oncologist who I love, he's, he's amazing, and MD Anderson in general. And I think why I, you know, advocate and say they saved my life because they did, is that when I went to see my oncologist, I don't know if it was a first or second visit, but he said, you know, I know you're young and I know you're scared, but I'm not going to let you fall through the cracks because, you know, you're not our average patient. I want to make sure that you get the care that you deserve and you get the specific needs that you as a young adult have answered and taken care of because as young adults, we don't just, you know, it's not just like, oh, here, take, have an ostomy bag and move on. I mean, at the time when I was first diagnosed, it was my parents that were my caregivers and the crazy as it sounds, I was like, how am I ever going to date if I have an ostomy That's not bag? crazy. That's uh, that's a real uh, topic <laughs> that, that we've touched on. In prior episodes here, but uh, you bring up, a, you know, a, yeah. a really important point and concern. So I don't think that's crazy at all. Yeah, it's just you know, as a, as a, I think a young adult, you're you might be d thinking of different things versus somebody older that has been married, has had kids. You know, there's just 
there's just totally different issues for a younger adult versus somebody that's already been married and had kids. Let's just say that no matter what age they are, because I, you know, I was single, um, unmarried and, and didn't have kids. And so there's, there's fertility, there's dating, there's the loss of hair. There's all these things that somebody younger is just like, Oh, this is what I'm thinking about. And my doctor's only thing, only, uh, only, um, purpose is to save my life. All he cares about is I want to save your life. And I wanted to save my life too, of course, but I still sure. had all these questions. Oh, that's, that's a big issue, especially with uh, younger people who get diagnosed, all those issues that you just raised. So you're uh, a year and a half since your last uh, surgery, is that correct? And yes. Yes. you reflect back, how how has this altered your, your view of life? How has it changed you now? Oh God, it's changed so much, which is, which is crazy because I think that I had wanted to figure out really a career path, even though I'd done research for so long, I wanted to, to figure out a career path. And I thought maybe I would go back and work into a, work in a crime lab and, and use my master's. But if it wasn't for the, this disease, I wouldn't be where I am now, which is, you know, now I work in cancer outreach and education. Um, helping others and advocating for others and, and telling them about preventable cancers. And after I, after I got better, the first opportunity I could, I found a way to volunteer. And that was through a young adult advisory council that they have at MD Anderson. And I've been on that for, I want, about, I want to say about five years now. And through that council, I, you know, I found out about amazing nonprofits that do things for young adults. I found out about adventure trips that you can go on for as a young adult cancer survivor or patient. And so I think I'm on, I mean, I can't even think of how many different councils, but MD Anderson has a program called My Cancer Connection and they do amazing work. They have the, the buddy system where they'll match somebody with somebody else that has the same, same cancer and as close as they can, as far as stage, life, like you know, age, sex, um, if they're married or if they're not, if they have kids or not. So I help with that. And then they also have a program called Cancer 180, which is specifically for young adults. It's like once a month, they, they plan a fun activity for the adolescent young adult population, which you know is 18 to 39. And that kind of helped me, I guess, cope with my disease. That was the first time. I'd met, I'd met one other, um, I guess, survivor during my treatment who was um, a friend that I went to high school with who had survived colorectal cancer. And she was who I originally went to with any of my questions. But then I, I started getting active and volunteering and meeting so many other people that were just like me, that had been on a certain type of medicine that made them mean or a certain type of medicine that made them gain weight or they had lost their hair. And I really found myself. I found my true passion. And I also found an outlet to emotionally recover from everything that I'd gone through. You can talk to your friends and family as much as you want, who I love and, you know, were there for me throughout my whole journey. But until you actually talk to someone else that has gone through treatment or has helped take care of someone that's gone through treatment, I don't think I had really talked about a lot of my feelings or what I went through in my journey and recovered from everything. I just kind of put it in the back of my mind because I was in this tunnel, just survive, just survive, just get through this day, just, you know, one day at a time. And through all my volunteering and my advocacy, I turned that into a job. And I'm beyond lucky that I get to go out in the community and educate them about getting screened for colorectal cancer, getting mammograms for breast cancer, you know, getting the HPV vaccine, like just all the cancers that are preventable, I get to talk to people about every day. And I started out volunteering and now I'm, I found, I found my place, my, like where I, where my true passion is. And if it wasn't for cancer, I don't know if I ever would have found that, you know, who knows, but you know, if, if, if anyone can take something negative and turn it into something positive, 
I realized that I had found the positive within getting colorectal cancer by finding a job that I now love and look forward to going to every day and helping others that are either recently diagnosed and struggling with, you know, figuring out what ostomy fits them or whatnot. Because, you know, when I got help, I realized that I needed to give back when I was ready to give back. And so it gives me only joy and pleasure to help others because I've been there. And I know there are so many advocates that are exactly like that. They help because they got help. And it's it's the most gratifying thing That's that really I think powerful. I can do. There's so many stories. I I have my own. You know, so many of us of, of of the good that that's come out of this incredibly challenging situation. Uh, I I don't go so far as calling it a gift. Uh, when I first started the podcast back in 2015, one of the first people I interviewed, a guy by the name of Michael Holtz, I haven't forgotten what he said to me. He said, "Yeah, if this was a gift, I would definitely return it." Um, <laughs> But, but you know what you just shared of how your career has transformed into something you find incredibly meaningful, incredibly rewarding, all came out of a terrible experience. And now you're you're your career change really, really special. I mean, some of my some of, I'm gonna say the I wanna say fifty percent of my friends are probably friends I've met that are either survivors or caregivers or or have gone through something within the cancer realm and those are the people that I cherish the most now. I mean, I love, I love everybody in my life, but I just can't help but identify with people that have gone through some of the same stuff that I have. And, you know, along the road of, you know, going through cancer treatment, you lose friends because they can't deal with, with what, what's going through. And I've been lucky enough that majority of my amazing friends and family have been there throughout the whole journey. But now I've just added a whole new group of friends to my life. And they're my, my I'm, I, I don't know what to call them. They're, I say cancer buddies, but they're really like, they're just some of my best friends now. You know? That's why I hear people refer to it as your tribe. Yeah. I mean, they are. They, they are my tribe because I guarantee any, any given one of them, if I have a question about a medicine or whatever, or if I'm having a moment where I'm really sad about my life, I can call them and they will instantly answer and cheer me up because they have been there too at one point in time. And when I go to these meetings, wherever, whenever I go to one of these meetings, even if I go by myself and don't know anybody, by the time I leave, I know everybody and they're like family. Nobody gets it like the people who've gone through it themselves. No reflection at all exactly. on the people that are so important in our life. Oh, of course not, because I, I would not have survived this disease without my parents. They were there the whole, the whole journey, the whole way. I stayed with them when I was recovering. My mom was at almost every appointment. My dad was like the stoic one that was trying to, to make sure all the right questions were asked. I mean, they slept on the floor, or not on the floor, they slept on the, the chair that was very uncomfortable the first 10 days that I was in the hospital after my first surgery, you know, you can't, you can't ask for, for better people to be, to be there for you. It's just, you need them for one thing. And then you need people that understand for something totally different. Well, Allison, I really appreciate you taking the time to join me on the podcast and share your story. Uh, we, we are members of the same tribe, which is encouraging because <laughs> that just tells me that it's not going to be long before. Uh, our paths cross. Yes, yes. I'm sure we will meet at some point because with everything that I'm getting involved in or I'm already involved in, we will actually well, get to we, meet. We will have I'm another sure. connection here in a few weeks. You head up to get your rear and gear in Houston, and I will be at my very first get your rear and gear mm -hmm. uh, on May 20th in Orlando. I've done oh, other nice. events, but this will be my first get your rear and gear event. Well, we're always happy to have you and everybody okay. else. Again, my thanks. I uh, wish you all the best. Most importantly, uh, continued good health. And uh, thank you for all the amazing work that you're doing uh, in your community to impact uh, the well-being and the lives of so many people. I know they appreciate it. Well, you're very welcome. And thank you so much for giving people like me an outlet 
to tell our story in hopes of helping helping others because stories need to be heard so people realize they are not alone. I am Allison Rosen and I'm here with Lee Silverstein and we have cancer. We have three Get Your Rear in Gear events taking place between now and the end of July. All of these events are 5K run, walk, and kids fun run events. First one taking place this Saturday in Rochester, Minnesota at East Silver Lake Park. Following that stop, we go out to the West Coast to San Francisco on July the 8th. That is taking place at Lake Merced Sunset Parking Lot. And rounding out July is our Get Your Rear and Gear event taking place in Tindley Park, Illinois on July 22nd at Community Park in Tindley Park, Illinois. And that's your Get Your Rear and Gear events for June and July. Welcome to Ask the Doctor, where your questions regarding cancer and cancer treatment are answered by Dr. Tim Cannon. Dr. Cannon is with the Inova Medical Group in Fairfax, Virginia, and he's a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in gastrointestinal cancers. Dr. Cannon, thanks once again for joining us. Uh, my question this week is uh, we hear, you know, we go on uh, visits to our oncologists, we hear about pathology reports. Is that something a patient should have a copy of? And if so, why? You know, a pathology report is useful if you're going to seek out a second opinion. It's good to be able to take that pathology report to the doctor. I think having a pathology report. Um, allows you to sort of review the information at home and check, you know, what things you don't understand. And, uh, and uh, you can then bring that back to your doctor and say, hey, I'm confused about what this means. Should I be concerned about this? So, so I think, you know, uh, and sometimes those questions can be useful. They can help lead to an increased understanding of, of your disease. So in that sense, I think it is useful to have a, a pathology report. Sometimes when you're looking for information, of course, a lot of uh, people uh, are looking for more information about treatments and what they should be doing. They'll get on online groups. Uh, they may get on your podcast or they get on Colon Town, and uh, they'll, they'll be part of discussion groups where people will be saying things like, well, I'm mac microsatellite stable or I'm microsatellite instable or I, I express CDX2 and you... And, uh, somebody else didn't and they'll uh, start talking about treatments for those things or you know prognostic uh, uh, implications of having those findings and so it is nice to uh, you know when you're sort of in that chat room seeing what everyone's saying to be able to refer to your own pathology report and sort of uh, get a sense of what questions you might want to ask your oncologist that's helpful thank you so much appreciate the information all right thank you lee Thank you for listening to We Have Cancer, and thank you to our sponsors, H2ORS and the Colon Cancer Coalition, for your support. We Have Cancer is a proud supporter of Genie's Blue Angels, providing financial support to those affected by colorectal cancer.